Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 12, please, this evening. Hebrews chapter 12. Gesundheit. Hebrews chapter 12. Mentioned the some, uh, something this morning about uh, one uh, becoming a little more common way for folks to talk about sort of the cultural moment in which we live. Uh, looking, uh, there's been various ways. People have talked about Christendom and then living in post-Christendom. Uh, Christendom not meaning that everyone's Christian, but that there was a worldview that was influenced by Christianity so that uh, the, the framework uh, carried over some of the values of Scripture, foundational upon it, uh, another way it's been talked about recently is thinking in terms of a positive world where actually the culture around us tended to be favorable toward Christian values in some way, right? Not truly regenerate, uh, but even just the frameworks of it. Uh, the fact that, that in our culture, Primarily, there was an emphasis on, uh, for instance, monogamous marriage, and it wasn't really until the last uh, 40, 50 years uh, that, that um, no-fault divorce type things were introduced uh, because there was a belief in the permanence of marriage, and so even the legal structure supported that, right? It was, it was actually a framework that couldn't have been just uh, didn't just come out of anywhere. It came out of a, a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so there was a, a lot of positive framing of those things. But then clearly, as our culture began to remove uh, the, the theistic framework, uh, pull, pull away from those roots, it certainly went to a neutral world. And now folks are talking about there being actually a negative kind of world that that uh, the presuppositions of the culture around us are not receptive to Christian truth, but, but actually somewhat hostile to it, right? And, and what we're talking about really is not just open opposition, right? It's that we tend to gravitate toward that right away that we're talking about being persecuted. And, and I think sometimes uh, we... We make too much of that in the sense that, you know, somebody expresses some resistance to us and we want to put on the martyr badge and, and act like we're being persecuted. Um, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, there's real persecution happening in this world, right? So that's why I say that. I mean, there are people who are in jail for Christ. There are people dying for Christ. That's, that's a little bit different than having someone, you know, verbally uh, rebuke you about it. It doesn't mean it's not persecution because First Peter talks about a slander as an element of, of suffering for Christ, right? Jesus talks about people, uh, people reviling you for his name's sake, that, that you're to uh, count that a blessing for so they treated your fathers, persecuted your fathers before you. So Jesus does consider uh, verbal attack to be a form of persecution. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm just saying sometimes, because uh, we live in a victim culture, Christians want to pull the victim card right away, right? And and it might be, uh, it might 
might be we tend to think only of opposition. I'm thinking of that, but also quite deeper than that. And that is the fundamental shifting of the assumptions of our culture. Some of you may have seen the clip this week uh, on MSNBC uh, because Christian nationalism is sort of a buzz topic. And, and so the reporter said uh, that, that Christian nationalists believe that we don't get our rights from humans, we get them from God. And she said it just like sort of like, isn't that bizarre? And, and obviously the most obvious comeback people are saying of like, have you read the constitution? Right? We hold these truths to be that we have inalienable rights from God. I mean, that's actually the whole country was founded on the thought that rights came to us from God. But that's the, that's the part of it that you could actually have a major news media doing its critique on Christian nationalism and effectively say, believing what our constitution says is some kind of like dangerous Christian nationalism. That's, that's what I'm saying is the ground has shifted considerably, right? If that person uh, would, you know, would have actually been alive in the fifties, even they would have been shocked, right? To having prayer in the public schools, Bible reading, all those kinds of things. They'd have thought, what, what is this? And I'm not saying, I'm not arguing that those should be back. I'm just saying the, the fact that the assumptions have changed, right? That it used to be assumed that everything came from a creator. It used to be assumed that there is an order to life because of that creator, that there, there is a moral law that rules over all of creation. There is some objective right and wrong, and, and we've shifted away from all of that. Uh, I mean, it's still, it's not gone because people really ultimately can't deny the existence of God. Romans 1 says it's evident to them. And they can't deny the existence of a moral law because Romans 2 says their conscience accuses or excuses them. But what Romans 1 says is that they try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we're seeing the effects, I think, of that suppression gaining greater and greater public, public rule so that suppressing those things is actually in somewhat the dominant position, right? To push them down is, is more common. And, and so uh, we need to recognize that. And I think that probably fits a little bit hand in glove with what, what is, um, has been called sort of a wave of deconstruction among professing Christians that, that their, their uh, previously had held beliefs, they're deconstructing them uh, and, and honestly, in many cases, that, that simply means an abandonment of them, right? Or, uh, a reconfigurate, reconfiguration of them in such a way that they could actually no longer truly be called Christian because they've got no authority for their belief system other than themselves, right? So they're creating the God that they want, 
the religious belief system that they want rather than actually submitting it to the authority of God. And that uh, that's, you know, if you're looking at the landscape, uh, probably the turn of the millennium and certainly something like 9-11 accelerated that because there was a wave of atheist writers who became very loud and dominant in terms of media. And, and began their attacks against Christian truth. And, and so, so that's been a pervasive and persistent enemy of, of God's people and churches. And, and so that's, that's out there. And apostasies and enormous uh, failures probably in some sense um, – fed by the celebrity nature of contemporary Christianity. So people who become very, very popular, either through, uh, through entertainment or social media influence or book sales, and, 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 it, and a, a large number of those have eventually kept chasing after the approval of the culture around them. So they abandon the things that they used to hold to, and they, they've come out in favor of, of alternative belief systems or alternative moral authorities. And, and because they were people of great influence, right, they, they have a, 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 a seeping down influence on other people, right? So, so um, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how many all of them, but like, like, so some, an example would be, say, a guy like Josh Harris, who in the 90s was, was writing very influential books about dating, actually about not dating, kissing, dating goodbye, and all of those kinds of things, and prematurely elevated to a place and platform of influence, and eventually abandons the faith. Right, so, so probably uh, the evidence of violating what the scriptures say about not exalting uh, people as a novice, lest they be carried away through the snare of the devil. Right, but but all of a sudden, someone who who was held up by so many people as an authoritative voice then still carries some of that authority over when they start to say, well, you know, the things I believe, boy, I was, I was duped or I was deceived or I was, I was not right. And so the devil uses all of those things to sort of feed around the edges of churches, right? That's, I mean, he's been a deceiver and a liar from the beginning. I mean, that's, that started in the garden and it has worked its way all the way through, uh, through the New Testament, we know. Um, he's described as an angel, appearing as an angel of light, and so do his messengers. Right? So, so the spiritual dangers are not just that we would come under persecution. In some ways, uh, that's a threat, but it's not a threat to those who are truly regenerate, right? It's a threat to the visible church. That the persecution 
uh, doesn't actually endanger the salvation of a soul. What it does is it endangers the congregation of God's people because in terms of Jesus, uh, seed that appears to have given some signs of fruitfulness actually get choked out by persecution. Right? They, actually, they actually abandon Christ in order to preserve themselves from the persecution. And, and so it's not so much persecution as much as it is the, and I, I, let me step back from that. What I'd like to do over the next several weeks is, is, is work through some passages and concepts in the book of Hebrews, not about what's happening outside of us, but, but what's happening inside of us. Because the, the book of Hebrews, I think, is actually uh, a perfect model and textbook for congregational perseverance. I just think about the parallels that I was, the things I was just talking about, potential for persecution, potential for doctrinal accommodation for the purpose of acceptance, right? Find a way to, to minimize the distinctiveness of New Testament Christianity so that it can be acceptable to the culture around it. Instead of Instead of going, in language of the text, going to Jesus outside the camp, there's some desire to stay within and be accepted within the camp, right? There's a tendency to, to not hold fast to the confession of faith in order to protect oneself either from physical persecution or social uh, cutoff. Right, and 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 we're we're in the same kind of world. Right? Are we going to be willing to stand on the truth of God if it starts to cost us? Right, if it might cost you your job because you won't affirm something that you can't affirm. If it might cost you acceptance with people that you care about because you won't blur lines that they want to blur, right? Will, will you remain true to Christ? Will you stand with him, even if it means standing against the tide that's going the other direction, right? Hebrews speaks to that. Hebrews is, is designed by God to, to focus on the importance of remaining faithful to Christ. And, and so I'm not going to re-preach the theme of it, right? But if, if I did it really simply, right, lots of times we say that the subject or topic of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And that certainly is true because it says again and again, he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. It's a better covenant. So the superiority of Christ, but that's really just the, the topic. What it says about that topic is, is that because Jesus is superior to everything else, he is the only one to whom we can look for salvation, right? So it's, it's not just the topic, but it is 
Therefore, we must hold fast to him. And, and the reason I say that is that's, that's how you explain the fact that there's five warning passages in the book that say things like, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? Right? We are not of those who turn back to the condemnation of our souls, shrink back. Right? It, it's actually not just about the superiority of Christ. It's also about the right response to the superiority of Christ, that, that we need to hold fast our confession. So just in terms of its truth, it's very important to us in terms of our holding fast to the faith, persevering in our commitment, that we have confessed Christ as, as Lord and we hold fast to that confession. That's what personal perseverance is. But it actually says it in the side, inside of a context of congregational life. This book isn't written just to individuals. It's written to a group of believers. And there's a number of commands and explanations and responsibilities given that tie into one another's, right? Encourage and exhort one another, provoke one another. That, that it's actually, it's actually a community task to help people persevere in the faith. God never expected us to go it alone. He actually expects us to be in an assembly of God's people where we can uh, make the journey to glory together. We are pilgrims seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. And so we're, we're supposed to be marching alongside of each other. And so what I'd like to do, and I honestly don't know how long the series is going to be. Um, I've got an idea, but I also know that things start to expand. Uh, what I want to do is really just take time for us to walk through how God wants us to care for one another in this task of perseverance. How do we help each other? How do we, how do we walk forward uh, as God's people? And I want to start in chapter 12 with verses 12 and 13 and, and really just draw two truths from the text and then uh, start in some implications and applications. And I may not get to them all tonight, but that's why I've got an open-ended series. So we're just going to go that way. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So this is coming clearly down toward the end of the book and has been dealing with in the immediate context, uh, not just the issue of trials and persecution, but also seeing that in terms of uh, God's discipline, that, that it's God who's in control of the circumstances of our lives and every child that, that God loves, he disciplines. And so sometimes that discipline that comes in, we like to, uh, we are, we are, we are inclined to think of discipline as always corrective, right? Somebody does something wrong and you discipline them. So you're correcting something that's wrong. But, 
but we shouldn't miss the fact that there's actually a formative kind of discipline, right? That you actually, you actually uh, hold a child, for instance, accountable to do certain things in order to put discipline in their life to form the character there. Right? It's, it's not all negative. Boy, they got a line, discipline them. It actually is a part of the process of the formation of character that we, we, we put discipline into place so that it can build the character. It can strengthen them. Right. I mean, you know, think, think of a coach, like a, someone may make a mistake and make them run laps, corrective, but a good coach is making them run anyway. Right. He's, He's teaching them discipline. He's working them hard so that they can have the strength that they need to be able to stand in the moment of, of testing, right? It's, it's both. And, and so we're coming to a part in the book where, where the writer has been saying, you know, don't, uh, don't reject the discipline of the Lord. Realize that he's doing it for your good. He's doing it that you will, you will share in his righteousness, that, that you will have these benefits that accrue to you. God's doing this for your good. But he also knows that, that that process can, can, uh, can wear on people, right? That people might get weary in the midst of that. They might actually start to, to feel the weight of it. So, what I want to do is just draw out two, what I would say, based on this text, two foundational truths that then we'll think about the implications of it. The first is this, following Jesus Christ in a fallen world can wear you out or wear you down. Notice he says there, there are, there are hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Right? They, they might become weary in the process of following Christ. And, and that's not an unusual thing in the scriptures, right? You, you know, do not become weary in doing well, Paul says, both in Galatians 6 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Right? It's possible that, that you could become weary doing what's right. And he says, don't, don't cave into that. In due season, you will reap if you faint not. Right, so don't don't surrender to it. Uh, what's happening here in this text? It seems to be an allusion to the Old Testament passage in Isaiah thirty-five three, which says, "Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble." All right. Look back in chapter twelve to verse three, because here's here's the preceding context, verse three of chapter 12, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So look at what happened to Jesus and how he endured so that you won't get weary and lose heart. Look at verse five, All right? You... You have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So the idea of words like weak and feeble in verse 12 are reflecting that kind of weariness, the kind of 
uh, potential collapse, right? Have you ever, you know, you, you, you've uh, strained yourself to the point where you feel like you're about ready to collapse, right? You're carrying something and you can't, it starts to get too heavy for you, right? Or you've been running and your legs feel like they're just about to give out, or you just are ready to just collapse into bed from weariness, right? He's saying that that kind of thing can happen in a broken down world because, because it can weaken our inner resolve uh, to push forward. And the book of Hebrews would give us some of the reasons why that's the case. I and mean, I think the most immediate is uh, the fact that they're facing persecution and conflict. That's what verse three talks about, uh, hostility by sinners against you. Chapter 10 talks about afflictions, trials, and suffering, right? You endured, endured a hard conflict with sufferings. It could also be difficult spiritual growth. Look at 12.1 again. It says, put aside, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, right? It, it can become frustrating when you're tangled in sin. I mean, some people dive in wholeheartedly, right? And they're not seeming frustrated at all. But probably a lot of us in this room have experienced the frustration of a persistent battle with sin, right? That, that at some point, we're like, when is this ever going to stop? I mean, when, when, when am I finally going to get victory over this? And it might, it might cause us to give up the fight, right? We become weak. We become feeble in it. Notice in verse 14, right after our text, he talks about pursuing, pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So, so sanctification is something that we must pursue. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen. Right? And, and uh, I think if you understand what the scriptures say about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure or you putting to death the deeds of the body, that, that sanctification isn't a casual stroll toward glorification. I mean, the scriptures talk about it in terms of a fight, a battle of mortification, of wrestling against opposition. So, so in, in the immediate context, you can see reasons why they might become weak or feeble. Those things trigger it, right? If, if you face persecution, it may trigger, trigger a kind of weakness or or potential buckling of your knees, or you've been in a long affliction or trial or suffering, it may cause you to become weak. Your hands are dropping. You can't, you can't keep them up. Your knees are becoming feeble and buckling, right? Could be your own struggle with sin. Those are the kinds of triggers that the writer of Hebrews is concerned about. I would suggest that Right behind them, the real issue is, is probably hope, right? The, the Bible's clear. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
when you're in persistent persecution and you're not sure you can stand any longer, it's because you're starting to lose hope, right? I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can take this anymore. I don't know that I'm going to win. I might be defeated by this. It could be hope. Uh, you're starting to lose hope that you can lift another weight or stand for another day or hope that that things you've lost can ever be replaced or restored. Right? It might be in your heart you say something like, this is not how I saw life working out. I mean, this isn't the way I thought things were going to go. And I'm not certain that I have confidence or hope about what lies ahead. And, and, and your hands begin to droop. Your knees begin to buckle. It could be a hope that things will ever change. I'm, I'm never going to beat this. It's always one step forward and three steps backward. Or he is never going to change, or she is never going to change. I don't know that I can endure this much longer. Or my relationship with and fill in the blank is always going to be a mess. There's no hope that it's going to change. Right? And the loss of hope, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when the heart begins to get sick, hands begin to get weak and knees begin to get feeble. And, and that's what the reality of it is. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to deny the fact that following Christ in a sin-cursed world can be difficult, right? If you promise people a yellow brick road to sanctification, and then they find out it's a slog down a muddy pathway, <laughs> you've set them up for failure, right? You've set them up for a greater discouragement because their expectations are not controlled by what the scriptures say. They're controlled by, uh, by really myths that life is, life is just going to be, you know, uh, just so great with Jesus. Right? And, and, and it is, but not great in the way that you think because he's not your genie to solve every problem. He's the one to sustain you through it. He is the one who can, who can cause your hands not to be weak and your knees not feeble. But that doesn't mean he's always going to extricate you from your problem. He may choose to empower you as you continue through it. Right? It may be that his plan for you is to glorify him in the midst of your weakness, not from a position of strength, so to speak. Second, second truth. Following Jesus Christ in a fallen world is a congregational project. It's a congregational project. Because look what, look what he says here, right? The commands are strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Then verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is joined is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So there's a need for the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ 
because he's wanting them to do this together as God's people. It is why verse 13 of chapter 3 says, encourage one another day after day, and why chapter 10 verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, but encouraging one another. Right? So, so the writer of Hebrews, ultimately the author being God, knows that, that we need the ministry of people around us to, to be able to persevere. Because sin is deceptive and it hardens the heart. You've heard me say this before, but it's one of those ones that I'd, I'd like to come back to because it, the very nature of this, right? So if, if the nature of sin is it deceives, that means there's always the danger in my life that I'm not seeing things as clearly as I ought to see. And I need people to exhort and encourage me so that I can see what I'm missing. I think uh, C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility uses a good illustration of this. He was sitting in a bagel shop and there was a guy, he says, you know, decked out businessman going to a big meeting, had the suit ready, tie, everything. He finished his bagel and he had cream cheese on it and he had cream cheese on the side of his face. And he couldn't see it, right? He didn't know it was there. Have you ever, I mean, no testimonies, but I mean, have you ever all of a sudden looked in the mirror and you're like, how long has that been on my face? And that's where this guy was. He couldn't see what was wrong and he needed somebody to point it out for him. And spiritually, that's often what, what's at stake in it, right? We, we are deceived by sin so that we don't recognize the danger that we're in and the damage we're causing, and we need somebody to exhort and encourage us. And so we don't, we don't see clearly. And then since it hardens our heart, I think what's going on there is the effect on our conscience. We're not feeling properly. Right? It's uh, the process Ephesians 4 talks about is getting callous. Right? And, and, uh, I think I don't, I mean, I don't think I have to probably do too much convincing on this, right? You, you probably can look over the course of your life and go, there are, there are things that at one point I thought were wrong. And then later I was doing them. And I went from the first time I did it feeling conviction to slowly dulling out the conviction. I mean, that's what's happening in our culture around us. I mean, you, if you're old enough, uh, you, you know, if you turn on a TV now, you're like, did they just say what I think they said? Right? They would have never been able to say that <laughs> on TV. And, but, but all of a sudden our collective conscience has become hardened to it. And in fact, that can happen in the course of the life of a believer is they begin to tolerate sin and then they begin to, to, to sometimes justify it, certainly accept it. Um, you know, people who would never talk to their boss the way they talk to their spouse. 
right? They would never show the disre- the blatant disregard and and speak as cuttingly to somebody that that was outside of that circle, but they've actually become indifferent to it because they've done it so much. And they're not even feeling the conviction any longer. And that's why, that's why God puts us in a community so that, so that someone could say to us, man, have you really thought about the way you just addressed your wife or how you just talked to your child? Or the carelessness with which you said something that was really sort of questionable in terms of whether it's coarse jesting or filthy, right? Because it can be easy for us to start to get callous and, and God wants us to have bl- uh, brothers and sisters in Christ close enough to us that they can speak truth to us. And in this particular context, it's a part of how we actually have our hands strengthened and our knees supported so that we're not collapsing, right? The image, I believe, that he uses early in the chapter is that the Christian life is like a marathon race, right? We're running a race with endurance. And and sometimes uh, we need someone to sort of cheer us along. You feel like quitting, but don't quit. You can crash through this quitting point. Keep pushing on. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep running. That's, that's a part of what he's talking about. So it's not just always we're pointing out where somebody is sinning. Sometimes we're, we're coming alongside him and say, hey, hang in there. Keep running. Don't stop. Keep following Christ. I know you're tired, but keep going. That's a part of what he's called us to do. And and he talks about it being a spiritual battle in verse four, that we're in a conflict. And 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 we all know, I mean, it's it's like the stuff of lore for us, bands of brothers and soldiers who are who are fighting on because they feel the obligation and the encouragement and the help of their co-laborers and warriors in the fight. God never intended us as believers to be engaged in that battle all on our own. He did not. He he calls on us to recognize it. I like the way one one commentator put it in terms of this text, quote, "The, the appeal is ultimately for the community to endure in the struggle with a genuine concern for the weakest of their number. So, so here's, here's an aspect of the love of Christ that should be flowing up out of our lives is that we're not just concerned about making it ourselves. We're concerned about the people around us who might be struggling. And think, think about Jesus, right? I mean, he, he, he was coming down to the end of his earthly ministry. And he was facing enormous pressure, enormous spiritual conflict. I mean, he was, he says, my soul is troubled almost to death. He asks for those closest with him to come apart with him and pray 
with him. Right? So, I mean, he, he, he was looking for the, 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 the camaraderie and, and commitment of his, his brothers. Right? So Jesus wanted that. But also, just before he gets to that moment, you know what he says to Peter? Satan has desired to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Right? Jesus was going to the throne for Peter because he knew Peter was going to get hammered in the moment of temptation. And in fact, all of John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples on the edge of this enormous conflict he himself is going to have. And you know, he's praying, Lord, keep them, keep them from the evil, right? Help me not to lose any of them, right? Jesus was praying like that and then praying that they would be knit as one, that they would be united together in their confidence in Christ. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is about. And that that is radically contrary to the kind of spirit of autonomy and independence that our culture thrives on. Right? Grab yourself by the bootstraps and you make it. And nobody should stick their nose in your business. It's your business. You just do your thing. And that's not the pattern of the New Testament. And, and what that really results in is, is sheep at the edge of the flock that Satan, like a wolf, can pick off. Because they're not in the safety and, and protection of the flock. They're just sort of straggling along, thinking that they're okay. And the devil's like a roaring, roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. I mean, God has called us to do this together. So, so here's what I'd really like to encourage you. Uh, you're here, right? And, and, and here's what I'd say is uh, I'm, I'm doing this series on a Sunday night rather than a Sunday morning. And I'm not saying this to uh, hopefully it won't puff you up because I preached about that this morning, right? But, but I'm assuming a certain level of commitment to Christ in our church because you're here, right? You're here. So, so here's what I'm really hoping to do is can we over the next several weeks just think about truth from the book of Hebrews about how important this is, that's tonight, then how do we go about living this out? Because this is, a, this is only a part of our congregation but if I could actually just capture the hearts of even part of you, right? It could be enormously, profoundly helpful for our church that we would be seeing what God's plan is for the perseverance of his people through the life of God's people in the assembly. So let's, let's have ears to hear and then hearts to do. All right, let's move toward one another for God's glory and our own good. Let's pray, please. Father, thank you so much for your word in its truthfulness, but also uh, 
its usefulness. It's not just an intellectual uh, process of, of learning facts, but, but it's written for our transformation. It's written uh, so that we might love you like we ought and have a good conscience and a sincere faith. So please use these next several Sunday nights to strengthen us in this, to help us guard against the attacks of the evil one, and to promote godliness that is honoring to you and of ultimate eternal value, that we would be a people that reflect the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.